policy borrowing is often about borrowing rhetoric rather than detail. Uh, and that people use what's happening in one country to legitimate what they, they want to do. Hi, my name is Aisha Small. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth in Education podcast, where I interview interesting guests to explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK. This podcast is brought to you by the Youth Think and Action Tank, LKM Co. Hello, welcome to episode 7 of the LKM Co Youth and Education podcast. I'm back. This is part 2 of uh, a two-part conversation that started off last episode. So in the first part of this conversation happens in episode number 6. So if you haven't heard that, you might want to go and listen to it, although this does stand alone pretty well as well. The person I'm talking to, my interviewee, is Professor Jeff Whitty, extremely accomplished former president of the College of Teachers, um, currently holding positions at the University of Newcastle, Australia, to do with widening participation and access, and also a research professorship in education at Bath Spa University. He was the director of the Institute of Education for a decade, from 2000 to 2010, and he's held numerous other high-profile positions. His main interests are the sociology of education, he also looks at education policy and the effects. So our second, the second bit of our conversation very much looks at the global landscape. So Jeff and I talk about education policy tourism uh, between the UK and other countries in both directions. Jeff also delves into his view that slogans such as no excuses are not especially helpful when shaping educational policy or even practice. We also talk about how policies that are adapted from other countries need to consider the local landscape. We talk about inequality and how that can be tackled worldwide, much more on the macro level than any of the other podcasts that we've done so far. I hope you find it as fascinating as I did when I was talking to Jeff. Time to dive in and let's get geeking. LKM co-believes society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at lkmco.org. Can we listen to it now? So we touched a little bit on uh, the world. You've held a number of posts in a variety of countries and also have quite an international perspective. Well, what are the similarities, I should say, in terms of best practice things? Where have you seen policy being used best? Sorry, well, edu- uh, research being research used best, being I should being say. Used best. Um, well, that's, that's, there are two aspects to that question, I think. Uh, one is where is it being used uh, and I, I think it does tend to be used in places like Singapore uh, where there's a very high uh, interaction between the uh, government education department and the National Institute for Education which in a sense is the equivalent of this institute but that that a very small society and 
people know each other uh, and it can work quite well in that context. Uh, it's also quite an authoritarian society and therefore uh, I'm not sure that the notion of um, alternative perspectives uh, gets a lot of traction in that, that, that sort of context. But it is certainly the case that uh, the government uh, consults the education academics a lot more than happens here. Where it's working, I think, better uh, is in some parts of uh, Australia, where, as, as you mentioned earlier, I spend some of my time where, in, and I'm in New South Wales, and the New South Wales government uh, has adopted uh, something that's been developed called Quality Teaching Rounds, uh, which is based on a lot of hard research work on uh, what constitutes quality teaching in the first instance, and then secondly, uh, in terms of the... Uh, way you actually get that into the professional development of teachers generally. Teachers reflect on their own practice in the light of uh, broader research evidence. I've seen nothing like that here uh, and I think it's an example of where the, the Department for Education in New South Wales and the universities are working closely together but that, that's just one example. Earlier, you mentioned Michael Barber, and you know the thing that teachers know him for. Was the first thing that I knew him for was uh, something he did with McKinsey, I think, yeah. when he was yeah. there. Yeah. Um, and it was basically looking at this is what happens around different places in the world, yeah. uh, what works, and then you know that whole agenda of kind of education policy tourism in a way. I don't know yeah. how to describe yeah. it. Yeah. Um, you know, at the moment, uh, Lucy Crean's um, made quite a splash in the education world from visiting different countries and then again looking at what things work in those contexts and starting to talk to people here in the UK about it. So part of what you said about Singapore was that yes things do work but it's also very different society to the UK so it's possible that those things may not work here. So what are your views about educational tourism and transplanting? Ah well. (laughs) Transplanting I don't know. (laughs) Yes I mean I I agree with what you just said (laughs) a hundred percent. Um, I mean, I, I've written about this in the book on um, transatlantic policy borrowing, and uh, I've sort of mused about why why would Britain or UK, England, look at America? Fairly mediocre OECD. Yeah, um, and the same applies to Australia, actually, these days. Uh, they, they're all in the same ballpark. So why not look at Finland or Shanghai, China, which do well in Pisa, and what what I what I say, I mean, is that firstly, policymakers in countries like UK, US, and Australia um, move in the same networks and have shared assumptions about how the world works, and therefore probably more ease with each other, so that policy borrowing in some ways is easier. But but secondly although that might seem a bit myopic, um, it it is also the case that, in some sense, it makes sense because social and political traditions of those countries have much more in common with each other than they do with 
even Finland, let, let alone Shanghai, China. So I do think um, uh, it, it's likely to be the case that um, uh, you can find things that, that fit more to your society if you look at relatively similar societies. But even in those cases, uh, you have to be very sensitive to the, the, the differences. I mean, we were talking earlier about Teach First, uh, and um, I was involved in the early years of Teach First, and uh, I had some involvement with Teach for America and understood a bit about what it was. Uh, and when they wanted to introduce it here, it was going to be called Teach for London initially, uh, I was one of a number of people who, who, who were assisting its introduction, but at the same time saying, hang on, you can't just bring a blueprint from the US and plonk it down in London. Uh, it won't work. And we eventually developed a uh, system which was much more sensitive um, you, you as a Teach First graduate might not have realised that it was, was less American than <laughs> it was originally intended. But um, certainly the whole uh, location of it within uh, the, the teacher training agency funding model, uh, the involvement of Christchurch, uh, Canterbury... Uh, all of these things made it much more acceptable, for instance, to the teacher unions than Teach for America is in, 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 in the US. But, I mean, the, the other thing you have to understand, I think, is that policy borrowing is often about borrowing rhetoric rather than detail, uh, and that people use what's happening in one country to legitimate what they, they want to do. And... In the book, I talk about the rather amusing example that um, Grant maintained schools, which were introduced by the Thatcher government long, long before academies. Yeah. Um, they they were set up here as schools aut autonomous from the school district, uh, and they were used to legitimate the development of charter schools in the USA. It's <laughs> And then 20 years later, uh, when later governments wanted to introduce or develop academies and free schools, uh, they looked to America, to charter schools. Look, they've done this in America. Uh, isn't this a good idea? <laughs> Completely forgetting <laughs> that actually the influence initially had been more the other way. Um, but as I say, the... It, it, it's often to do with providing legitimation for a policy, uh, not for actually borrowing the detail. And, and that's right not to borrow the detail because it's in the detail that, that, that you need to um, be much more responsive to the local culture. Um, I mean, you can talk about globalisation of education policy and that it is true that... Uh, you know, similar education policies are being adopted in different parts of the world, but they're they're actually adopted differently, uh, and different parts of them are picked up and or not picked up, uh, and it, the same policy can actually have very different effects in different societies. So school choice, which is something I've written a lot about, 
um, will work much better uh, in more egalitarian societies than, than it will in highly um, unequal societies. Um, they're just discovering this in China mm. where uh, school choice is a big thing but uh, inequalities in China as, uh, as such that they are now looking to Western theories <laughs> to try and understand why uh, the school choice policies are driving inequality rather than inequality and they're looking at Western uh, theorists like French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu uh, and getting very enthusiastic about it. Oh, we now understand how social class can affect education. And we sort of think, well, didn't you know that before? Um, so one, one of the um, chapters in this other new book of mine is by two Chinese scholars from Beijing arguing that they need to develop um, their own uh, if you like, a, a sociology of education with Chinese characteristics, to coin a phrase. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's funny, actually, because you were saying about um, sometimes the importance of how similar the cultures are. And as you were talking about kind of top-performing places like Finland, Singapore, you also mentioned Shanghai. And I thought the first thing that struck, struck me was they are all pretty homogeneous societies, um, f- for a start, when you compared them to, say, the UK or US. Yeah, but by comparison, comparison. I mean, when you get to know them, they're more diverse than they appear. Mm. All of of those, actually. I mean, um, China, where I do a lot of work, um, some of it quite controversial, in Western China, where there's a huge uh, Muslim population, which are very uh, disadvantaged uh, and arguably discriminated against uh, is, is something most people ne- never see. They only see uh, the Han majority uh, and see China as the east of China, not, not, not the west of China. It's funny because it feels like we kind of come back full circle. You're, when, I first, when we first started talking, we were basically talking about social inequality um, and how you'd been drawn to tackle that in different roles and now as we're talking I'm thinking that you're you know the more experience and the more reach and opportunities that you have you're addressing that in a global context Um, and I'm just wondering do you have any from your experience around the world you know what are your kind of final thoughts about inequality and how it can be addressed or is it the same all around the place with different types of people you know what are your views what have you learnt oh Well, what I've learnt, particularly uh, in the work I've been doing in Australia, uh, is that you have to address both similarities and differences. Uh, I mean, the work I've been doing in Australia is about widening participation in higher education. I've helped set up a centre for excellence, centre of excellence for equity in higher education, uh, where we're uh, doing. I, th- I think really interesting and innovative work, uh, which is about linking up uh, different aspects of education uh, and looking at how that links into uh, wider social disadvantage. So, uh, as, as, as well as researching that area, we are 
designing outreach programs that um, are responsive to the research and we uh, are looking at issues that are also very relevant here actually Chris Husbands my successor as director here was only saying last week in his capacity as chair of the teaching excellence framework how it's no, no good just getting disadvantaged kids into university you've got to understand and follow through the um, disadvantage that they experience while they're at university and even if they get a top uh, degree from a top university uh, they uh, are still disadvantaged when they go into the labour market in terms of level of job, in terms of uh, promotion, in terms of salary. Uh, and that you can't tackle that um, just through education. You've got to have what, what in the 70s I would have called linked struggles, um, what now I would call sort of more about collaboration and, and, and networking between um, those who are fighting inequality in education and those who are fighting inequality in society as a whole. And although globally the inequalities are different, um, the basic lesson that, 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 that I, I suppose started with in talking about the vulture's eye view uh, is that you've got to understand how inequality in education is positioned in relation to inequality in society as a whole uh, and that education uh, can be part of the solution but is only likely to be uh, part of the solution if it is pursued alongside struggles in other areas. So um, I've been a great supporter of the pupil premium but the pupil premium's effect is going to be uh, very limited if at the same time you've got welfare benefit cuts and cuts in school budgets uh, overall. So uh, any policy you pursue uh, has ripples and effects elsewhere uh, and is affected by policies elsewhere and so you've got to work together uh, on these things. And I'm, I'm actually been quite encouraged uh, recently by things coming out of your own organisation and out of Teach First, mm. which have been saying good teaching for disadvantaged kids is a necessary but not a sufficient uh, condition of getting uh, a more equal chances for, for those kids. Uh, as they move into employment and, and, and so on. And so, uh, in a way, I find myself seeing people exercising the sociological imagination, uh, which they might not see it as such, but looking at education much more uh, in a broader social context than uh, they have been until recently. Um, partly because I think uh, it's been recognised that educational change and uh, social justice in education is much more complicated, much, much more complicated than uh, perhaps the new Labour government thought when it first came in in 1997. Collectively, uh, I think uh, as a profession we have to see ourselves as, as linking to other professions and uh, uh, wider social movements, to, to, to put it frankly. 
Thank you. That's, it's funny you should say that because I think that's part of why I started to transition out of the classroom because I don't think, for me, education was able to do what I thought it could do. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that's very similar to my experience that I wrote about in a much earlier book. But I, as I say, I, I, I do think there are positive things. Um, and, I mean, one positive thing just, just this weekend, uh, the... Uh, the new, um, well, not so new now, but Amanda Spiel and the, uh, the, the, the Ofsted. Um, HMS, HMCI, Ofsted, mm. um, said she wanted to uh, wanted Ofsted to engage more with the wider research community, to beef up its uh, own research capacity and play a greater role in informing education policy not on the basis of personal prejudices or hobby horses. <laughs> now, I don't know who that was a uh, comment on. but Who could it uh, be? She, she, she wanted proper evidence from the ground. Um, and certainly by implication, she suggested that hadn't always happened. And uh, um, I, I think that that's an interesting comment. Though I'd also caution against any expectation that personal prejudice and hobby horses won't influence education policy. I think it's possible for them in, not to in the future. Um, but what what I'm about is getting more evidence out there, not expecting it to drive to be the main driver uh, of policy, but as I say, to inform the wider public debates about education. And um, I think. Uh, universities haven't been particularly good at it and um, maybe things like Teach First and your organisation uh, are showing us the way to go on that. Yeah, I think part of what we try and do at LKMCO, like you said, is help to inform the debate and yeah. get it in front of a range of different people who might not otherwise be involved with research yeah. or engaged with it yeah. in that way. So that's positive that there is an appetite in the schools. It might not be done perfectly or brilliantly or it's, people are still learning, but there's an appetite for research and what it can do. Yeah. And I, I think, possibly going back to an earlier question, or implied by an earlier question, um, one of the things that has really annoyed me through, throughout the last 20 or 30 years is uh, the, the, the notion that poverty is not an excuse for educational failure, um, which is true. Uh, but it's not true uh, if it's taken to mean poverty is not a reason that contributes to educational failure. Uh, but if you say, hang on a minute, you, you're seen as somehow part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Uh, and if, if only people would listen to what we're saying, uh, uh, I think it would be much more helpful than slogans uh, or simplistic narratives uh, like like that. I think we, we've, we've got to listen to each other about understanding uh, how educational change for social justice can take place. In your view, so in your mind, what is the distinction? I think I do get what, you're, what, what the point you're trying to make, but I just want to make it explicit. So um, poverty is not an excuse rouse you <laughs> but po um, po uh, poverty is a reason you know can you unpick that a little bit Look, I actually Amanda Spearman was sort of talking about this in, in, in her speech uh, to get success 
in disadvantaged schools, disadvantaged areas with individually disadvantaged pupils requires a lot more uh, than working with uh, kids who come from more affluent backgrounds. Uh, and the notion that, that you just have to uh, pour more knowledge into them, uh, yeah, um, and do the same things as independent schools do, for instance, uh, or uh, you assume that because you can do something in Hackney, it's going to work in Doncaster. Um, all just seems to be so simplistic that you uh, you you need to have uh, interventions that are responsive to the the local needs and. Um, the, the notion, I, I mean, I don't know who uses poverty as an excuse. Uh, it's just a slogan that uh, is not particularly helpful. And uh, the sooner we can move away from sloganising, uh, the, the better. And I'm not saying that policymakers are the only, uh, the only people at fault there. Um, and that, another bugbear of mine is amongst my sociology colleagues who say everything that's wrong in education is due to neoliberalism. Uh, and I, I have to say, well, let's unpack what neoliberalism means. No, I was just about to ask you that because yeah. it's one of the things that's often bandied around, but I, a bit like an earlier con- uh, I can't remember what the phrase was we were talking about. And I was like, well, what's it actually mean? And you were like, well, it's funny you should say that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if you unpack neoliberalism, what's it mean to you? It's something that's often thrown around. Yeah. Well, I mean, to me, I actually use it as a very specific term about a particular um, new right uh, ideology, uh, which is is about marketization uh, and uh, individual freedom. Uh, and it is obviously part of the mix uh, of what influences education policy. But a lot of things that people blame on neoliberalism, uh, in, certainly in terms of inequalities, were there in the system when it was a social democratic system. Uh, so I think both policymakers and researchers have got to be prepared to look at the nuances uh, and not. Uh, not, not just throw slogans like that around. Uh, but I am sometimes make myself unpopular with colleagues when I say that. I get the feeling that you uh, don't mind not being massively popular about saying things. <laughs> no, I, I mean, again, you can say someone at my stage of career doesn't need to, but I, I think I've always been fairly outspoken. I remember when I was appointed to the job as director here, uh, Stephen Ball, a uh, fellow sociologist who was then at King's College was quoted in the Times, Ed, who was asked, asked about me and he said, well, he's basically a straight-talking man of the left and I'm quite happy to um, be described that way. I think that's a lovely way to end it. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful conversation. really enjoyed it. And thank you for being I have too. Thank you. Hey, people. I love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, there's a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. Press the subscribe button on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. Two, share. Share this episode with somebody who you know will find it interesting or is affected by the specific issues covered. Three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also feel free to contact us via the links on the show notes. Thanks a lot. Bye.